When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang. Today on the show, we're featuring a conversation with historian Richard White. Richard is one of the most important environmental thinkers living today. He's written influential books about Native American history and the American West. Over the past few years, as we've been developing Gen Anthro, we've met countless experts and thought leaders who point to Richard as a man of profound intellect. Which is why it may sound funny that today's conversation is about, of all things, Disney movies. Bambi, The Lion King, WALL-E. According to Richard, Disney movies reflect our attitudes about nature. But even more than that, they also shape our perceptions of the natural world. Richard teaches a class here at Stanford that explores all of this. The interview you're about to hear was conducted by producer Mike Osborne, along with one of our students, Tori Parrish. Now, Richard actually has been critical about using the word Anthropocene in environmental discourse, and the conversation starts with Mike and Richard having some back and forth about that before they dive into Disney. I want to first start off by talking about the Anthropocene, because mm-hmm. you expressed in your email to us some skepticism around the utility of the term. I was hoping you could elaborate on that. Sure. My, my skepticism comes out of my being a historian. And, and there has never been a term like Anthropocene invented before. And the reason is you might think, well, Pleistocene or Neolithic, all of those are after the fact. It's people look back and say, well, this is the most pertinent thing about this era, and this is why we're going to name it. This is one which essentially, this is a prognosis. We are now saying from here on in, we are the dominant species. And we might very well be, though I'd argue we've probably been the dominant species for quite some time and have already changed a lot. 
But, you know, let's say things that have happened in the past, a meteor hits the Earth, there's a series of volcanic eruptions, a whole series of things suddenly overwhelm everything that we do. So what do we do? Say, forget it, we're not the Anthropocene anymore. Um, so it seems to me this is a little arrogant and a little premature to start saying that we now know what for tens of thousands of years in the future is going to be the dominant fact about this planet. Um, people might know it, I don't know it. The prematureness, actually, I hadn't heard it but that resonates. That feels very true. The arrogance part, I'm not so sure, because I do think that there is something about the term that encapsulates the magnitude of changes we're seeing across the surface of the earth and therefore has utility. Yeah, I think there are huge um, changes. I'm not arguing about that, but I'd say in many ways it's the scale of the changes, not in, in fact um, the changes themselves. We've changed smaller portions of the earth dramatically. Um, I'd say already we have changed well before global warming. We had changed the entire Earth. It could not be understood without a human impact. Uh, what we've now done is we've actually changed the atmosphere. And I think one of the things that sort of soured me in the concept was Bill McKibben's um, End of Nature, which seemed to me almost hysterical. Um, nature isn't ended, but at the same time, something very important has happened. So I'm very much um, an advocate of the importance of climate change, that this is something that which generations to come people are going to have to deal with. But at the same time, I'm segregating that out from the idea of the Anthropocene, which is this is a geological era which we can only understand now in terms of human beings. We're important, but we've been important for quite some time. I don't think it, it all rests on climate change, though, right? I mean, I think it's I think you can remove climate change from the equation and still have a valid argument for global scale changes to the surface of the planet. Oh, you can make an argument for global scale changes, but I would argue that, in fact, without climate change, we would not have Anthropocene. I mean, it is what driv has driven this forward. It's become almost a synonym for um, climate change. Okay, I might, I'm going to need to sit with this, but let's talk about Disney and circle <laughs> yeah. back to it. Um, so, yeah, do you want to learn it, Tori? Yeah, sure. So, um, we mentioned in preparation we were looking at the Tanner lectures that you gave in 1999. And in that piece, you seem to be outlining and critiquing a moral viewpoint and one that sources nature as kind of a moral authority. Um, that goes a long way in terms of explaining Disney's influence on our concepts of nature. And we were wondering if you could help us kind of understand this a little bit more. Sure. Um, you know, Disney doesn't invent this. This is the kind of stuff that comes out from uh, 19th century American literature, and it comes out even before that. You can find parts of it in John Muir. And the simple form of the argument is rooting a morality, rooting away a knowledge of how the world should work in religion is very, very old. But taking the idea in the 19th century for people who, for one reason or another, are either moving outside organized religion or, in fact, are trying to reinterpret that organized religion in terms of the scientific findings of evolution and other things, they want to ground morality in something outside human beings, but they don't want to ground it in God. They don't want to ground it in the Bible or the Koran or anything like that. So what they say they're going to find it in is there is going to be a natural morality, which can be discovered by looking at the natural world. And that idea is around well before Walt Disney comes. What Walt Disney does is popularize it. Disney's claim in his nature movies is fairly simple. Human institutions are grounded in the natural world. And that the way he does this is by naturalizing a whole set of things, particularly the family, 
particularly gender relations, and particularly racial relations, that there's an ordered hierarchy that exists in the world. So when Disney, and this is the odd thing about it, when Disney wants to see human social institutions, he looks towards nature. When he wants to see nature, he looks towards human beings because what's natural in us is he sees it is precisely the part that expresses itself socially. So it's a very complicated vision, but he can boil it down, and this is his genius, into something like Bambi. Whenever you look at a Disney film, it's full of families. It's full of men and women in quite particular social relations. And this is where it gets very tricky. They change over time. As American society changes, what's natural about the family changes too, but it's always natural. It's all around what you want nature to show, and Disney can pick and choose. How did you get turned on to this line of thinking? I mean, how did this, how did this come about for you? Well, it, it started out... Um, trying to think about what are the things that influence the way Americans, and after a while I thought people all over the world, think about the natural world. And I decided it certainly wasn't ecological writings. Um, it certainly wasn't even writers, popular writers like John Muir. Most of my students had never read John Muir. They knew who he was, but they didn't read him unless I assigned him. Um, what they did think about was Disney movies. What they thought about is a whole series of nature films. And I began to realize these come back to Walt Disney himself. So if popular culture, if nature films are the major influence in how people think about nature, and that the major person who began purveying that was going to be Walt Disney, then I started with Disney. Um, in one of our emails, you had mentioned that you think that Disney has a reach far beyond children. And you were talking about your students. That's the main thing they think about. But I know as a student, I remember Disney from my childhood. Right. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the children versus just society in general. Sure. You're at a particular age. Um, and I could ask you, do you have younger siblings, much younger siblings? No. Okay. If you had much younger siblings, you would be watching them watching Disney over and over and over again. If you have children, you will start seeing Disney movies again. And if you have grandchildren, you will see them again. And one of the things you'll notice in a Disney movie, something like Lion King, is he knows he's getting that kind of an audience. So, And here again, I'm talking the way Disney Studio. Walt Disney is dead, but everybody talks as if Walt is still alive. They're right as knowing that there are going to be adults in the audience. There's a whole series of jokes that go way over the heads of children. They're aimed at keeping the audiences entertained. Um, so that's what I mean. The audience goes well beyond children. These are family movies in the sense that they're seen generationally. I wanted to ask, you know, a little bit, again, how you got into this, because you talked about it in some sense in terms of it's just a big market. There's a lot of eyeballs on Disney movies, mm -hmm. therefore the, the influence is deep and profound. Was there a movie you started with that seemed like a natural candidate for unpacking this critique? Yeah, it's the, the movie that I start with in the class is the basic. It's the Ur-Disney movie. It's Bambi. I mean, everything you need to know about a nature film is in Bambi. You look at nature, and what you see is animals representing human families and social institutions. You see in those animals a social order, and that social order is naturalized. Um, you find also that there's going to be a place that human beings have to be outside of nature, but it's so cleverly done that, of course, the human beings are also the animals who are inside nature. So he's setting up all of these kinds of tensions, all of these paradoxes, in what is a fairly simple cartoon. And plus, it is even now, a visually extravagant cartoon. It is really well done. 
I tried to find it on Netflix last night, and I couldn't. The best I could do was Dumbo, because uh, <laughs> I was trying to prepare for this interview, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I'm going to be interviewing environmental historian Richard White tomorrow. Guess I'm watching Bambi. <laughs> um, I mean, there is a kind of, uh, I mean, there is a playfulness in this, yeah. but it seems to me that you take it really seriously. Oh, I do. I mean, a, a lot of the students who take this class, and I've been teaching the class for about 10 years now, can't believe that they're going to spend a quarter seriously watching first Disney movies and then a whole series of films that are influenced by Disney movies. I mean, we end up going towards Wally, -E, towards Rango. But after a while, they really get into to it and they really begin to take it quite seriously because I do take it seriously. I, I, I do think there is something quite real and important here. You mentioned Wally, and we actually had another question about do you see a distinction between some of the more classic Disney movies like Bambi? Um, you mentioned kind of a progression of the family structures and like Disney Disney and Disney Pixar. Any Disney movie and Disney Pixar will always play off the current social mo moment which is why so many of these movies are so useful historically because they reflect very closely the society that produced them. At the same time, he's looking for a repeat audience, so he has a series of things which will be timeless, but the critical things are going to be um, the ways that these play off a moment. And think about the opening of Wally. The opening of Wally is the standard nature shot. I mean, it is coming in from above. And then you begin to see what's first it looks like a landscape, then it looks like a city, then you realize it's an abandoned city. And then there's a brilliant moment that goes back to uh, the moment in which it is made. It's the beginning of the idea that we are worried about global warming. And what they show you is windmills and nuclear power plants. And so the message is, even with this alternative energy, there's something deeper going on here that has destroyed nature. But nature, in fact, has not been destroyed because you have the cockroach, you have the windstorm, and the plot goes on from there. Is this problematic, the way he's, I mean, nature's being put forward oh, and yeah. portrayed here? I mean, it is, because in fact, this is what allows him to be a sort of pioneer environmentalist in a sense, but at the same time to be very, very socially conservative. What Disney wants to argue is that the nuclear family is natural. It's the way you organize families. And how do we know it's natural? Because he reproduces it over and over again when he looks at animals in nature films or in his animated features. Um, how do we, in fact, know that we ourselves can't redesign a society? Because, in fact, when he looks for nature, he sees it in us. We are natural beings who, just like the characters in his movies, have to express a nature. Well, I'm hearing you talk a lot about kind of how Disney's reflecting our values and putting like the family structure into um, na a natural setting and naturalizing it. What would you say are some of the direct effects on the people who watch these movies and like our behavior and our thought processes after having this influence? What you get with Disney is it's a conversation because one of the wonderful things in the Disney archives is starting in the early 50s, Disney would preview these films in the same way they do them now to audiences and hand out forms to see what they got. So you have both the film and then the audience response. And he'd do this numerous times as he hones down the film. So Disney is not just dictating to an audience. He wants to know what works. He wants to know, in fact, what is going to bring people into the movie theater. But he's not willing to give up everything. And the things he's most unwilling to give up during his lifetime is a gendered version of the family in which 
women are domestic, even if, in fact, you have to eliminate the male sometimes because to get the natural world to work, um, and that what men do is protect the family, that there's a series of roles which are simply natural that go to men and women, that families are organized always around um, a monogamous relationship between, in this case, we're talking about animals, but a man and a woman. So he has a set of very conservative social values that he sets up and he shows in the film. So you actually went through the story notes? Y yeah. I, um, the Disney archives are a very strange place. There's no finding aid. At the time I was there, it's mostly the people who were coming through besides me were aging musketeers who wanted to talk about their a youth which had clearly been the high point of their life and things had not gone that well for them since then. And so there's those people are there. There's some tourists there, and there was me there, and there was clearly an archivist who may still be there who clearly distrusted me and wouldn't tell me what's in the archives, but for some reason, if I guessed right, he would give it to me. So what I began doing was going through a whole series of films, and I got yes or no answers, but when he wanted to give it to me, he'd give me the story notes. And what the story notes are is they start from the beginning of the project, where you know, they're just having this vague idea of what they're going to do. Then they begin getting together the footage, if it's a nature film, or drawing the cells, if it's an animated feature, then working through the story line. And you cannot overinterpret a Disney film. He's beat you to it. Literally, they will sit there and the, and the story notes record it, all of the things they're trying to achieve in this movie frame by frame. What works, what doesn't, the voiceovers, the music, the shots, what goes in, what goes out. And it's fascinating. What you realize is these are incredibly sophisticated products which are put together with a great deal of thought. So that's, I don't, what I didn't want to be was the academic who sits in the film movie theater and tells the audience what the film means. What I wanted to do was figure out what does Disney think the film means, and then I can read that against the audience reaction and against my own analysis of it. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the evolution of these films. I mean, do you see uh, a progression, a change in, 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 the, in the essential narrative you know, from film to film, decade to decade. Yeah, what you have is, um, if you start in the 30s, where the first ones come out, um, you have something like Fantasia. And Fantasia is a modernist film. I mean, it's, a, it's an experiment. And what does that mean, it's a modernist film? It's a, it's a film which, in fact, deals with a lot of abstract art, modern music, and it has no dialogue. There is nobody there except for the some of the breaks in between where you have the conductor talking. But in the film itself, there is no dialogue. The whole thing is communicated by color, music, and um, and figures. So it's a it's an astonishing piece of work. It's the equivalent of a kind of an abstract painting at times. At other times, it's going to be clearly figures that come out. And it's also Darwinian. I mean, it's an attempt to show this Darwinian nature. And that's what he does in the 30s. He's working on Bambi in the 30s, and Bambi comes out in the early 40s. But this one, what he's done is utterly rework a sort of naturalist film, which was about, it's a German novel about a deer in a forest, which he could do nothing with. So he remade the whole stuff. He bought the title and um, turned it into uh, this account of a pristine natural world where the animals live as a community. There's no predators in this world. And it's a world which is going to be challenged by human intervention. The danger to this world is human beings. So nature is a place which, in fact, is, deserves to be set off from humans. When humans come in, nature is going to be destroyed. But of course, 
all of the animals in the movie are humans, and Disney goes out of his way to make them as human as possible. So you have both of these things going on at once, and so you can use deer and other animals to represent what the human family should be. And the human family is, of course, a nuclear family, but there's, there's, well, there's problems that come in, but most of those um, are going to be missed by the audience. Okay, so I want to pause and try and understand if the argument is that this is capturing and reflecting a, a kind of a, a concept of nature that's prevalent or if it's disseminating one. It's doing both. I mean, Disney is not an original thinker. You are not going to find original thoughts in Disney. Disney is picking up, by the early 20th century, this idea that what counts as natural has to be outside the human realm. That once the human realm is there, it can't be natural. So that's part of what he's capturing, but at the same time, he wants to capture the opposite, which is, makes these films so interesting. He wants to argue that everything we do, if it's going to be right and moral, is based on nature. So how do you communicate both these ideas? Well, you do both things. Human beings come into nature and they wreck it, but the animals are so recognizably human and have social forms so similar to the American social forms that they're clearly based on nature. And that's what Disney does. The reason he's doing it in the Depression of World War II and they proved so popular is this is a time where there's a great deal of stress on the American family, the American way of life. And what Disney does is, in fact, naturalize it. Our way of life is going to survive because it's, it's natural. This is the way nature um, organizes things. But at the same time, he plays to an American love of nature, which is pure and outside of us because... To get the values from nature, nature has to be separate from us. If it's not separate from us, all we're doing is gazing in the mirror. So Disney says, no, no, nature is a separate world from human beings, even at the same time he locates nature in us. So it's a, a complicated set of paradoxes, but they're American paradoxes. It's what many of my students already believe, and when they see Disney articulating it, they are um, sort of agree with it, and then other times begin to question it. Um, I'm curious about one of the things you mentioned about the role of humans coming in to the movies and like wrecking nature and what role that you think that plays and then I'm also curious if you think that there is there seems to be an effect on our social structures and how we think about like the nuclear family is there an effect on how we treat nature I, I think there is but again it's this dual conversation that takes place because what Disney will say in the 1940s if we talk about in time that when human and the famous line in Bambi is man is in the forest when man is in the forest that's going to be the forest is burned down Bambi's mother's killed so that's Disney in the in the um, 1940s but if we go back to Wally Wally is different. That's a movie about human beings cannot be fully human unless they go home, unless they come back to a world that they have wrecked, that they both need the earth and the earth needs it, that you cannot be fully human unless you return back to a natural world. Disney will play it both ways. These things evolve over time. It's popular entertainment, and that's what makes it so useful for me as a historian because you can see evolving ways of thinking about the natural world and the human relation to it in these nature films and animated features. Um, they reflect the time that they're, that they're made. So what do we see? I mean, I almost want to skip forward to the 1960s where, you know, the rise of the environmental movement in America. I mean, what do we see there? Okay, what you begin to see there is, remember, that'll express itself, I think, more in the 70s and 80s as they begin to come out. But the classic one is The Lion King. The Lion King is the whole circle of life that now we have, in fact, that 
the lions as predators, but they really do is keep a balance of nature. So Disney in the 60s and 70s is very much around a balance of nature, that the whole thing is going to stay in tune, but that a certain kind of predation, a certain kind of balance is necessary, but at the same time, it's about a hierarchical society. You know, it's much nicer to be a lion in The Lion King than to be an antelope or a gazelle. Um, that's the way things work out. Just some species are above other species, but together they all balance out. That's what I mean about a conservative social vision, which is attached to an environmentalism. I mean, I guess I, I, I still want to stick on the films themselves as being perhaps reflective of an involving environmental ethic, but maybe that's total BS. Maybe there really isn't much of an evolving environmental framework for how we think about nature and how we, you know, in an era of, if we're not going to call it the Anthropocene, at least inevitable climate change. Oh, yeah. What, there is an environmental ethic, and you can see the environmental ethic evolve over these films. I mean, one of the things you have is Disney in the 1940s with Bambi. The best thing we can do with the natural world is leave it alone, not touch it. So Disney is, a, is already beginning with the will, kind of John Muir wilderness idea. It's a place you visit, which gets more and more powerful as the century goes on. Disney's very much a part of that. But if you go to something like the um, Living Prairie, then he makes an argument of more of a conservation ethic. Actually, we've changed this so much that the, there's still remnants of it, but these remnants will never survive without our active intervention and protection. So there you begin to get a conservation kind of ethic which sits alongside the wilderness ethic, which have both been part of the American 20th century view. By the time you get to Pixar and to Wally, what you're beginning to get is a kind of Anthropocene. The idea of the Anthropocene there is human beings have totally dominated the planet. They've dominated the planet, and they've now totally wrecked it. The only way humans can survive is leave it all behind. But at the same time, they can't be fully human unless they re-engage with the planet. So at some point, they have to come in, and the, gar and the metaphor in Wally is a gardening metaphor. That what you see in those final scenes is literally reestablishing a garden, not a wild nature, but a nature that's going to come back because human beings have to nurture it. So now we've had both extremes of the Anthropocene, the bad Anthropocene and the good Anthropocene. So, yeah, it's an Anthropocene movie. I mean, I think I think that one of the things I'm struggling with a, a little bit is what for you is problematic still? Because I think, um, you know, the, the lectures, we read them, and I, I imagine this is still true for you, is that anytime anyone is trying to derive a kind of moral authority, a purity from a concept of nature that 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 you, you call BS on that. Is that right? Yeah, it, that kind of scares me. It's been used for so many bad things um, because, in fact, I mean, all you have to do, and it doesn't even matter when I use the word current world, I would say over the last hundred years, whenever a certain group of people has been condemned, very often persecuted, and sometimes killed, the claim is that they're somehow unnatural. They have unnatural practices, they engage in unnatural acts, they organize society in an unnatural way, that they, in fact, are um, people who have been cut off from what means to be fully human, and therefore they can be treated as if they're hardly human at all. So these claims to nature scare me. Um, they scare me a lot. So I'm always very, very suspicious of them. But at the same time, I recognize that human beings need a source of authority outside themselves, but I don't think they're going to find one. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in God. I don't 
think that that's going to be a source of authority. I clearly don't think you're going to get it from nature. That at the same time, it forces us back into a very scary place. The only kind of morality we're ever going to derive is when we work out together and one that we work out together in a way that will allow us to sustain an ongoing human relationship. But that can go wildly wrong, too. I mean, what we, what we are is a, a species closely connected with nature. There's evolutionary parts about us, but that part is not going to tell us how we organize a society. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm suspect of sociobiology, that so much of it is this reductionist claim that any action we have can be traced back to our genes, and yet there's such wildly different ways that human beings act and organize a society. And we can see them changing so quickly that it can't possibly be genetic. Um, so this, you know, this is the, the problem that you're, that you're left with. And it's, you know, as, as both a humanist, as a historian, um, I long ago reconciled myself to the fact there are not going to be easy answers here. You are not going to get this by choosing to believe something or by stepping outside yourself and the answers are all going to be there. Um, that's not how it, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah. I was wondering if, I feel like that has, must have some way to kind of tie into our control of nature in Disney movies and reflecting like our ideas of nature and our ideas of society. And I was wondering if you have a way to kind of synthesize yeah, these things. You know, what I, what I do is I say that the, the basic tactic of nature films and Disney is the one who mastered it the most is pretty simple. In a nature film, you look at nature and you see human social organization because you organize animals and others the same way humans are organized. And you look at humans, and then you make the claim, everything we do is natural. This is the kind of back and forth that's worked very, very well. But it makes it this very much this human cultural product. We're pretending that we're looking at the natural world. But what we're really doing is telling a story about the natural world, which is in many ways a story about us. Um, you know, Bambi is not a story about how deer live in the forest. It's a story about American society. And if you take other ones, March of the Penguins is not a story about emperor, emperor penguins. It's a story about how human beings organize gender and family relations when the film was made. And that's just the way these films work. That's what they do. And they do it very, very well. That's why I'm fascinated by them. But out there, and this is the part I don't disagree with you, is an actual, complicated, incredibly interesting natural world that we find a very hard time talking about without talking about it through the lens of our own society. Richard White, it's always a pleasure to have you in studio. Thank you for taking the time. Sure, I've enjoyed it as usual.